0: Hello and welcome to San Francisco Ballet's To The Point podcast. I'm Jenny Scholek, the Associate Director of Audience Engagement here at San Francisco Ballet, and I am your host for To The Point, the podcast that tells you all about San Francisco Ballet's season and performances. Today, our topic is the most popular ballet in America, Nutcracker. If people only know one ballet, it's this one. And if people have only ever seen one ballet... It's usually this one. And it's with good reason. Ever since its first performance in the United States, right here in San Francisco in 1944, it's been the most performed ballet in the country. Clara, the Sugar Plum Fairy, and the valiant Nutcracker Prince are as much a part of the holidays as Santa Claus. Today we're going to talk a little bit about the history of Nutcracker and give you a few things to look for in our own very uniquely San Francisco Nutcracker, choreographed by artistic director and principal choreographer Helgi Thomason in 2004. So are you ready for some sugar plums to dance in your head? Then let's get to the point. current popularity, the 1892 Nutcracker got off to a bit of a rough start. It was created by the same team as The Sleeping Beauty, choreographer Marius Petipa, librettist Ivan Siewololski, and composer Peter Ilyak Tchaikovsky. It started with Siewololski, who had the idea to adapt E.T.A. Hoffman's story, The Nutcracker and the Mouse King, for a ballet. The story itself was quite popular in Russia at the time, and then as now... Choreographers and artistic people are always looking for ways to get people into the theater. But although Petipa was on that original team, and although he sent Tchaikovsky very detailed lists of what exactly he wanted musically for this ballet, in actuality, Petipa didn't end up choreographing very much of Nutcracker. Uh, he was elderly and he fell ill, and so the task of choreographing the ballet really fell to his assistant, Lev Ivanov. Ivanov was a really talented choreographer, particularly with regard to large court de ballet work, like in the snow scene or in the Waltz of the Flowers. But he had his faults. Some choreographers come into the studio ready to go. They have lists. They have notes. They know exactly what they're going to choreograph. Podopo was like that. Others come into the studio and they kind of figure it out while they're there and that was Ivanov. He apparently got easily distracted, too. He was really into playing cards, and sometimes if dancers were sitting on the side of the room playing cards, he would go over and look at their hand instead of paying attention to what was in the room. Usually, this way of working worked for Ivanov. But because Nutcracker had a lot of scenes with a lot of people, including children from the local military academy, it meant that rehearsals were a little chaotic and a little, mm, Perhaps just not as pulled together as you would want for a brand new ballet. So this was reflected a bit in the critical reception in 1892. The main problem for critics and audiences was about how the ballet was divided up. One of the things that really bothered them was that there wasn't very much dancing in the first act and that there were just too many children. And then the second act was all dancing and no story. It felt unbalanced somehow. And back then, it, this production wasn't really tied to Christmas in any way. Um, and it's still true in Europe and Russia today. People do Nutcracker at all times of the year. It's not like a specifically holiday thing. For this to become a big holiday spectacle, it would have to wait until a much later version of the production and for a trip across the ocean. So it was in 1944 that Nutcracker got its first real hit. San Francisco Ballet was about 10 years old, and Willem Christensen, the director, was looking for something that would bring a lot of audience members to the ballet. He also knew that he had the theater in December. They were were doing a holiday dance festival. So Christensen had first tried out Hansel and Gretel as a ballet in 1943 as a holiday show, and it did fine, but it wasn't a huge hit. So 1944 rolls around. He wants something new. He thinks maybe the Nutcracker. The Nutcracker wasn't super familiar to Americans at this point. Obviously, a full-length version hadn't been done here. Um, some Russian touring companies had done expert excerpts, but not the whole thing. However, what was popular was the Nutcracker Suite, which was a condensed version of the score that Tchaikovsky had made. Um, so audiences did know the Nutcracker Suite, even if they didn't know the full Nutcracker and its story. And they might have seen little bits of it here and there on tour. So christensen thinks all right let 's let 's do this it 's really incredible when you think about what christensen did he 'd never seen a full length version of this production. He asked some friends who had seen it in Russia. Um, he listened to the music, he thought about what he'd seen, but he really made it from scratch. In fact, it was really a hard. It was a really difficult to find the full score. He ended up having to go to the Library of Congress. There was only one copy of the full score in the entire country. But as he was trying to figure out how to make this ballet, he had a bit of luck. Uh, George Balanchine and Alexandra Danilova, George Balanchine of New York City Ballet, um, Alexandra Danilova, one of his great dancers, had both danced this production at the Mariinsky in Russia before they defected. And came to the United States. And they were coming through San Francisco on tour. So he invited Christensen, invited Balanchine and Danilova over to tell him what they remembered about this show. And the story goes that they talked for three hours, um, remembering what it was like to perform in this production as children. At one point, uh, Danilova, who had a wonderful memory for choreography, could remember steps that she had done years and years ago, stood up to begin to show some of Clara's steps to Mr. Christensen. And again, this could be apocryphal, I don't really know, but the story goes that Balanchine said to her, no, no, Shora, Shura was her nickname, no, no, Shora, don't show him the steps, let Mr. Christensen do his own choreography. And... I love that story because I think it really shows how this ballet has always been a little bit less precious than something like Sleeping Beauty. It's always changing. Every company has their own version. Every production is a little bit different. And I, I like to think that that malleability dates back to this first 1944 production right here in San Francisco. So this time around, 1944, San Francisco, unlike 1892 in St. Petersburg, Nutcracker is a big hit. There were five performances and people loved it. However, it stayed only a San Francisco holiday tradition until 10 years later, 1954, when Balanchine, same guy, perhaps remembering his talk with Mr. Christensen 10 years earlier, decided to do his own Nutcracker for New York City Ballet. While The Nutcracker was by no means the first or the only story ballet that Balanchine choreographed in this period during the 1950s, it was by far the most successful. With an abundance of child dancers, of fanciful sets, and with a really charming story, this ballet shows Balanchine at his most accessible and charming and commercially popular. As Jennifer Fisher points out in her iconic book, Nutcracker Nation, Balanchine borrowed heavily from his time spent on Broadway and in Hollywood for this 1954 production. Everything from the way that Marie first meets uh, the Nutcracker Prince, which Fisher compares to a meet-cute in a movie, to the Nutcracker's growing tree, which is incredibly cinematic and cost an amazing $25,000 in 1954, which in today's money would be about $225,000. So the Nutcracker, which from the outset brought full families to the ballet, kept New York City Ballet financially solvent in this period, and it does that for companies in and out throughout America now. It sold out all its shows. It made New York City Ballet more than $52,000 in ticket sales in its first year. Again, that's in 1954 money, and it ran in encores into February. Pretty much this version that Balanchine made was all new, except for one section – the candy cane, which is not something we have in our production. Ours is a little different, but his production has a candy cane section. And that was a part that he did when he was a kid at the Mariansky. He was known for that part. And my understanding at least is that he kept it pretty much intact, what he remembered for his version. However... We're still not quite nationwide as a holiday tradition um, until 1958, when on Christmas Eve, the New York City Ballet version was broadcast on nationwide television, beaming the Nutcracker into maybe not every home, but at least every home with a television in the United States. This was in actuality the second time that Balanchine's production had appeared on television. The first was in 1957, so just one year before, when it was shown as part of the Seven Lively Arts, an arts program uh, that presented the ballet with really minimal changes to the choreography and with minimal imposition by the cameras. It was largely filmed straight on, as if from an audience, and all narration, and there was some narration, happened between scenes, kind of like as if they were program notes that an audience could read before the performance or at an intermission. The 1958 version was different. First off, it was live, which just adds an element of, um, I don't know, an element of risk, I suppose, to the ballet. But it also made a variety of choreographic changes and concessions to television that helped to make this more accessible to American audiences and to popularize the production. It's clear that year that CBS, who broadcast it, was interested in moving the piece from being an arts performance and sort of understood as an arts performance, to being a family event. As actress June Lockhart phrased it in her introduction to the broadcast, the Nutcracker is, quote, the favorite Christmas show of children everywhere, end quote. Of course, up until this moment, only children in New York or in San Francisco would have been familiar with more than the music of the Nutcracker Suite. So by saying it's the favorite Christmas show of children everywhere, even when most children have never seen it, they're creating a kind of argument for this as a, as a piece of family uh, tradition. And this version was narrated through by Lockhart. So she talks over every scene, explaining what's happening to an audience maybe not used to watching ballet. And the ballet is also framed by images of Lockhart sitting with a little girl as if she's her mother beside a, fire, beside a fireplace reading to her from a book of the Nutcracker. The final shot shows the child asleep, as hopefully many little boys and girls were when the show ended at 11 p.m. After this version, after this television broadcast, pretty much every company in the United States started doing a Nutcracker, and it is a huge part of why ballet companies can be successful, accounting for a really high proportion of ticket revenue every year for most American ballet companies. So what are you going to see if you come see our version, our Nutcracker? Well, let's quickly recap the story, and I'll give you a few pointers on what to look for. Again, this version was choreographed in 2004 by our very own Helgi Thomason. So our version begins long ago, but not very far away, on a foggy Christmas Eve in San Francisco in 1915. In the opening prologue, we meet Drosselmeyer, who's a magical toy clockmaker who's doing a pretty good business for 5 p.m. on Christmas Eve. It seems many people have left their shopping to the very last minute and on their way to an epic Christmas party need to pick up some gifts. The prologue's fairly short, but take a look at the typical San Francisco architecture that's featured and the interactions between the passersby in the 1915 street scene. Act one begins in earnest once everyone has their presence. The curtain opens on a fancy Victorian house with a beautiful tree in the midst of a Christmas party. The hosts are the Stahlbaum family Dr. and Mrs. Stahlbaum, their son Fritz, and their daughter Clara. Fun fact the Stahlbaums seem to be related to San Francisco Ballet's own Christensen brothers one of whom, as I said, is responsible for that 1944 production. Or at the very least, I think they must be related, because there was no other reason I could imagine that they would have their portraits up on the wall. After lighting the tree with electric lights, the children and the adults dance, and Clara is invited to join the grown-ups for the very first time. Drosselmeyer shows up, turns out he's Clara's godfather, in addition to being a toy maker, and he puts on a magic show for the kids, complete with dancing dolls. After that, he hands out gifts, giving Clara a nutcracker. She dances around the room with her new toy until kid brother Fritz grabs it and breaks it. Little brothers are rough. Uncle Drosselmeyer manages to heal the toy by tying a handkerchief around it and gives it back to Clara. But eventually it gets late and everyone heads home. As the original critics complained, there's not a lot of ballet in this first scene. But that doesn't mean there isn't dancing and a whole lot of plot. Note the way social dance is used to create a sense of place and time and to establish hierarchies among the guests. Also note the moment when Clara goes to join the parents dance. This is a sign that she's growing up, a theme that will be explored throughout the rest of the ballet. After everyone goes home, Clara worries that her Nutcracker won't sleep well without her, so she leaves the comfort of her own bed to go sleep with him on the couch. She falls into a strange sleep and dreams about the toys from the party coming to life. Drostle Meyer appears to truly fix the Nutcracker right before Clara wakes up and realizes that her whole house and its inhabitants are growing around her. And its inhabitants include some kind of vicious mice. The nutcracker comes to life to defend Clara against those mice, and a battle ensues. Once Clara realizes that if the mice are giant, the mouse trap probably is too, she's able to come to the Nutcracker's aid. But too late, the nutcracker collapses, and Clara begs Strosselmeyer for help. He gives it. He does love her, after all. And he resurrects the nutcracker, not in his nutcracker form, but as what he truly is, a prince. So what are we looking for? Well, Balanchine said it was all about the tree, and it is. It's pretty magical to watch it grow. Also keep an eye on the king of the mice. He has furry legs, a swagger, and a flair for the dramatic. With the king of the mice out of the way, the prince offers to take Clara on an adventure. Their journey begins with a trip through the land of snow, where they're greeted and then sent on their way by the king and queen of the snow. But to be honest, this isn't just snow. It's more like a blizzard. We actually dropped 600 pounds of paper cut to look like snowflakes onto the stage and look for the way that the steps themselves and the dancers' formation on stage resemble snowflakes. This is the first time that we get to see the full court of ballet dance, and it's an opportunity to see what San Francisco Ballet's dancers are really able to do. After intermission, we all come back for Act Two. The Prince and Clara arrive at the Crystal Palace, which looks quite a bit like San Francisco's Conservatory of Flowers, built for the 1915 World's Fair. I wonder why. And they are greeted by the Sugar Plum Fairy. Ever wondered what a sugar plum is? It's a round piece of hard candy. The prince tells his story and mime, and the sugar plum fairy commands all her subjects to dance, including visitors from Arabia, France, China, Russia, and Spain, who were perhaps visiting for that 1915 Pan-Pacific Fair, which happened here in San Francisco, and there's also a waltzing garden of flowers. Then Drosselmeyer and the sugar plum fairy transform Clara into a grown-up ballerina so she, too, can dance with her prince. This act is all about the dancing. In San Francisco Ballet's version, the Sugar Plum Fairy dances in the Waltz of the Flowers. Her movement is joyous, crisp, and intricate, like a piece of sugar candy. And look for the Grand Pas de Deux, performed by a grown-up Clara and her prince. They'll dance together, then separately, listen for that iconic Celeste music in Clara's solo, and then together again. They should be stately, regal, and just a touch melancholic. Growing up is bittersweet. And finally, after everyone dances, Clara wakes up, a little girl once again, back at home on the couch. It's Christmas morning, and she runs back up the stairs into the waiting arms of her mother. And that's The Nutcracker. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to check out our other To the Point and Meet the Artist podcasts, which are posted all throughout our season. Recent podcast episodes live on our site at sfballet.org and in your favorite podcast player. Hit subscribe so that you'll get our newest episodes downloaded as soon as they're available. Also, please do leave us a rating and review in the iTunes store or reach out on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. We're at SF Ballet. We love to hear from you, and your ratings and reviews help us reach new and bigger audiences. Thank you for listening, and see you at the Opera House.